welcome to the Eastern Front. On our podcast, we talk about the security challenges that have arisen in Eastern Europe over the last several years, from the Baltic to the Black Sea, what we call the Eastern Front, and the implications of those for the United States and its interests. Joining us on this day before Thanksgiving is our good friend, retired General Ben Hodges, whose last job in the U.S. Army was as commander of U.S. Army Europe, and he's been one of the most prescient observers and closest students of the Russo-Ukrainian War since its beginning, and in fact, since its beginning back in 2014. Uh, nobody knows it better than, than does Ben. Joining me today are my colleagues. Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and... With the American Enterprise Institute. It's good to be with you all. Ben, welcome back to the show. You've been on here several times before, and it's good to have you back, particularly as we enter this holiday season, maybe a season of reflection. And that's sort of where I'd like to start. I think back to the earlier parts of this year and the decisions made about what arms to transfer to the Ukrainian military and how that has really shaped the course of the campaigning since then, and especially the so-called counteroffensive that the Ukrainians have conducted. I hope we will talk about the parts of that campaign that have produced uh, important results, but certainly for people in the public, and as we were discussing when we uh, recruited you to come on again, the public mood in Washington has turned sour in many quarters about the war. But again, to go back to late winter, early spring, when especially the decisions were made in this country, but also across the Western Alliance, about what arms should be transferred to the Ukrainian army. I confess I had a nagging feeling at the time that the amount of supplies, the capabilities that were being transferred, and the rather slow pace at which they were transferred have gone a long way to determine the situation that we're now in. Many people have cast many stones at the Ukrainian conduct of the war, but again, I think so much of it is determined by what capabilities and what kind of quantities the Ukrainian army has had at its disposal and almost especially the things that it hasn't had. And I'd be very interested on your observations about this subject looking back through the course of the year as we try to sort of assess where we are now. So that sort of somber assessment you just, or description you just gave, is a reflection of the unwillingness of the administration to declare that it is in our strategic interest that Ukraine is successful, that Ukraine wins, and that Ukraine defeats Russia. They can't say that. I mean, I listened to uh, Secretary Austin's uh, remark yesterday after his visit in Kiev, and, you know, he and the ambassador and everybody keeps talking about we're with Ukraine for as long as it takes. That's the limit of what they're willing to say. And, of course, that's not an objective. It's an absolutely meaningless empty statement. It feels good, but it does nothing. And so because the administration will not commit to helping Ukraine actually win, then you end up without good strategy, it's impossible to have good policy. And so we don't have policies that deliver the capabilities needed to help Ukraine win. And so of course, what we're talking about is long range precision capabilities and other things that would help Ukraine make Crimea untenable for Russian forces. They've already proven the concept that it works with just three storm shadows and clever use of drones and some special forces. They have brought about the departure of the Black Sea Fleet, part of it, from Sevastopol. I mean, that's huge. 
So imagine if they just had 50 300-kilometer Atakums and 50 German Taurus, it would be impossible for the Russian Air Force to operate from Crimea or their big logistics base in Zhankoi. So I can only speculate why the administration stops short of wanting to see Ukraine win. And then, of course, you've got the uh, doomers out there that are saying, see, it's deadlocked. There's no way they can win. Ukraine needs to settle for something. And I think this is so short-sighted and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if we aren't giving Ukraine enough to win, and I think there's consensus with you here, General, in, in terms of this podcast, and we talked about this in several forms before, let me run by you another doomsday scenario. We're giving now Ukraine, if we're measuring by rounds of ammunition, if you'd like. They're holding miraculously given how little we're giving them compared to what the Russians are using. What is it now? 10 million rounds per year compared to what we've given them, 2 million. And the Europeans just announced that they won't make the benchmark they put themselves of a million, but only 300,000. So this is the proportion. Now, what if we will give them next year less, considerably less? What are we looking at in terms of the scenario in the next few months? How much will they be able to hold? And what is the worst case scenario that you're looking at for the next six months? Because I think we need to be aware of that too. We're not talking about that. We're waiting for the Hill to decide. We're putting pressure on Ukraine must win, but we're also looking at a scenario that we might be enabling directly or indirectly here in Washington particularly, but also then in Europe. And, and that would be kind of the second question. How will Europe act in this instance? What can they pull together? You know better. You live there. What are we looking at in terms of a scenario in which we're giving them considerably less than we've already done over the last year? So the good news is that Europe is, as a whole is actually providing more than the United States in big round numbers, not artillery ammunition, obviously, but in terms of big round numbers of things. Uh, Germany just announced that they intend to double what they're doing. That's not inconsequential. And certainly critics are right to point out that Europeans have to do more as part of this. It can't be U.S. only. I think the Ukrainians are not going to stop anyway. They know they can't stop. They know that Russia actually is not interested in any meaningful, serious negotiation. And even if they were, they would never live up to any agreement they make. They never have unless they were forced to. So Ukrainians, I believe, are determined to drive on with what they're doing as best they can, regardless of whether the U.S. provides capabilities or accelerates the delivery of things. The sense is that Ukraine's own defense industry, these guys are working really hard, really fast to develop drone technologies, especially maritime drone technologies, which are changing the character of, of naval combat inside a body of water like the Black Sea. And then, of course, on the other side, you've got a Russian force that is, I think, at the end of its logistic tether. Now, certainly, they're going to continue to put extremely unlucky young and old men into the meat grinder. Uh, they're going to continue sacrificing, you know, somewhere close between 800 and 1,000 people a day in an attempt to overrun Abdivka, for example. But I don't think that their logistics system 
is up to the task of helping them achieve anything decisive on their own. The, the Russians are clearly in this for the long game because they are so sure that, that we are going to give up, that we don't have the political will to keep doing this. And so every time somebody writes an opinion piece that says, you know, it's time to stop the wishful thinking about Ukraine, they need to negotiate. That's another ration of oxygen for the Kremlin. And then, of course, this uh, Hamas attack on Israel, that was not a coincidence. This is orchestrated by Russia's uh, only real ally, which is Iran. And, and the Kremlin is benefiting from the distraction of attention as well as even resources to Israel. So I think the president has got to explain this strategic situation to the American people and why this matters to us. This is not about Ukraine's freedom. They're already a free country. Part of it is occupied. But you know, when I see statements from the White House talking about we're, we're gonna keep helping Ukraine fight for their freedom, it is really very frustrating. So if I may ask you two questions, one is more technical, bordering on, on, on really an accounting question. And the second one is political. And I'm cognizant of the fact that you, know, you are coming from a military background, you're not a politician yet, I mean, you've you know, navigated environments where there were, you know, civilian political actors making making decisions. But first of all, the technical accounting question. So, so we, we understand that there is a need to pass another Ukraine supplemental bill to authorize further spending, further assistance. But we also know that the way these bills work is that they basically provide administration with resources to replenish U.S. stocks with new equipment, new weapons while the administration gives away old stuff to the Ukrainians. And I wonder to what extent the administration enjoys some discretion, some degree of you know, freedom of action in deciding you know, how much monetary value is to be placed on the old stuff that we give to the Ukrainians. It's not obvious to me that we should be valuing you know, 30-year-old tanks or weapon systems that we give away at their replacement value. If, especially if the counterfactual would have been for them to just rust in storage forever. So, so to what extent is the administration in its actual assistance to Ukraine constrained by, by the sort of headline numbers on the supplemental bills? And to what extent would they be actually able to do more than they are doing rather than, you know, give 30 Abrams tanks to the Ukrainians or, you know, just a handful of HIMARS systems, etc., etc. And, and the, the political question really goes back to what you said at the beginning about the administration's own thinking. I wonder if you could man for us the argument that the administration is using for standing with Ukraine for as long as it takes. Because to me, it looks a not particularly compelling, I mean, in the light of what their concern seems to be about Russia's potential for, for escalation. I and mean, we've been in this war for 18 months. We haven't really seen meaningful anti-Western escalation in response to our assistance to Ukraine. And B, it seems to be truly politically suicidal for President Biden to be following this course of action, knowing that there is an election next year and that he'll have to defend his record in Ukraine. I mean, it would be far better for him politically to defend a record of a Ukrainian victory than what looks like a stalemate frozen conflict so, so so if you could sort of you know explain to us what they're thinking is sort of present the sort of best version of jake sullivan joe biden secretary austin's argument for why they're doing what they're doing and b how much actual you know freedom of action they have to do more without asking for uh, for congressional permission so to speak 
So let me take those uh, one after the other. In terms of what we provide, of course, the administration has tons of leeway to do a lot more. I mean, they're just not using it because they haven't said it's our policy. Our, our strategic end state is successful Ukraine victory over Russia. Russia's ejected back to the 1991 borders, and we're going to continue to help them rebuild their economy and get them uh, into NATO and do other things in the Black Sea region. So if you lay that out, then all the hand-wringing and, and whining about how much fuel an Abrams tank uses or how long it takes to train an F-16 pilot, that all goes away. I mean, because those are excuses for not doing what needs to be done. You know, they said for months and months and months, well, we can't provide attackums because we don't have enough. Well, wait a minute. Enough for what? Attackums were being decommissioned. The Army was not going to use them anymore. And you would not use attackums in the Pacific. So, I mean, what are, what are we saving them for? But this was an excuse, along with three or four other different reasons why we couldn't do attackums. And then, of course, the CEO of Lockheed says, well, actually, the Department of Defense never asked me if I could restart the line. This is all about 100 percent about political will, not a shortage of ammunition. This is the United States. Come on. I mean, political will is usually manifested in money. And if we had the political will, the administration would have said, OK, I need you to 10 times the amount of artillery ammunition. Let's get going. Now, in the first year, they quadrupled the amount of, of artillery ammunition. And I mean, that wasn't that hard to do. So it is possible, but it's about political will. I would encourage you, if you haven't already, talk to Luke Coffey. Uh, Luke Coffey uh, from Hudson, you know, does a good job laying out or busting some of the myths about aid and, and where the money goes. And of course, uh, one of the biggest beneficiaries for all of this is the U.S. defense industry, because we are exactly, as you said, uh, repl replenishing stuff that we've handed over or this is spurring production like okay we have to we have to increase and get more of different types of things so it's not like there are plane loads of money on pallets that are just being handed over to ukraine but that's kind of the way this is being done so the white house has got to do a much better job of articulating to the american people what's going on now on the political part i can only speculate but i think that most americans actually if the president would say listen up this is why this is our advantage this is about european security and stability which is necessary for european prosperity and america's prosperity is tied directly to european prosperity uh, these high food prices you're complaining about, you know, part of that's because of the grain shipments that have been stopped coming out of Ukraine and the uh, disruption of energy supplies. This is all because of Russia's attack. And so this is about our own prosperity. And by the way, if you believe what the Russians say, if they're successful in Ukraine, they're going to keep going into Baltic countries. But that means that now the U.S. is in a no kidding, we're in the war. We're not just providing ammunition, we're in it. And then finally, the Chinese are watching. Chinese are watching and say, does the U.S. really have the political will, the industrial capacity, and the military capability to help Ukraine defeat Russia, help Israel destroy Hamas, and also help force Israel to accept a two-state solution, and deter Iran from more attacks against U.S. troops, and still have something left for China? That's what the Chinese are waiting to see. If we don't, if we can't even help Ukraine defeat Russia, then I think the chance of China making a terrible miscalculation goes up. So these are things that I think have to be explained better by the White House. Uh, fortunately, the, the, the number of real vocal opponents to this are small. They're mostly Republicans in the House. Most of the Republican senators are completely on board with support for Ukraine. So politically, it shouldn't be that hard. So I can only speculate, and then I'll shut up, 
is that the, the administration is overly concerned about some sort of Russian escalation, which really means using a nuclear weapon. And I think exactly as you said, I mean, every time we've taken the next step up, the Russians can't do anything else about it. And in fact, I think it is so unlikely they would use a nuclear weapon because they see that we limit ourselves. We deter ourselves just that they might use a nuclear weapon. So their nuke is more effective if they don't actually use it. You know, this self-deterrent dance has been going on for so long. And as you say, none of the experience of the war confirms it, only refutes it. I'll speak for myself. I feel like I'm at a point where I'm looking for, for some other explanation of administration behavior. You know, whether it's their nervousness about West European allies or or what it is, it's really difficult to explain their behavior simply on this fear of a Russian nuclear use. I mean, it, it seems, of course, it would be catastrophic, but it's so unlikely. And we've crossed so many so-called red lines up to this point that it, it just really doesn't hold water anymore. It, it is obviously an excuse, but it's very difficult to figure out what the purpose of the excuse is exactly. Well, Giselle, you're exactly right. None of this holds water. I think, if I are all the different people I'm referencing now are smart, hardworking, Many of them have committed their life to public service, uh, but you've got a large number of people that are so-called Russia experts that have their whole professional career invested in their assessment of Russia. And now Ukraine is about to give lie to everything that they believe and what they have said. And many of them, I would say most of the Russia experts that are in the administration now were in the Obama administration, which also completely misunderstood, mishandled all of our relationships with Russia. They're still a hundred times better than, you know, what happened in the Trump administration. But the fact is, it's like, well, Russia can't be defeated. There's just no way we can do it. Ukraine needs to settle. Why? I mean, why are we calling on Ukraine to settle, to do something when we haven't done what's necessary to help them actually win? And, and so there's this kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. They can't win, so we're not going to give them what they need. And if you don't get what they need, they can't win. That's where we are. And, and we are going to look back on this period right now. I think in a few years, we're going to be shaking our head at the missed opportunity we had to fix European security issues for generations because we couldn't make the decision to help Ukraine win. Can you expand on that, Ben? I mean, I, I very much have had the same instincts, but what is that future that obviously is so clear to you that, that is not clear to the people who are making decisions about it? Well, I think that Russia, the, the Kremlin, let's say, let's say the Kremlin, only respects strength. And when they see that we don't respond to everything that they do, they just keep doing it. I mean, there's a pattern of this that goes back over centuries. This is who they are, but particularly the Putin-led Kremlin right now. And so if you think about it, they've been an empire for the last four or five centuries. They've never really had to come to terms with being defeated. I mean, the only time they lost was in the First World War. And of course, then you have the, the Bolsheviks and, and they withdraw themselves from the war. But to be defeated in a conflict where they have to say, OK, we, we can't just keep using force against all of our neighbors. I think this would cause them to rethink how they operate with the rest of the world. Because right now, you know, the arrogance that comes out of uh, all of their, the well-known, the people that talk on behalf of the Kremlin or Lavrov 
or uh, Putin's spokesman, the arrogance and, and the uh, absolute disdain for international law, international agreements, it's not going to change until they are ejected from the occupied territory of Ukraine. And look, there's good people, I think, that are probably worried, oh my God, what happens if the government collapses, if the Federation collapses? I would say we should not be scared of that. I'm not advocating that we try to bring it about, but we should think about, okay, what does that mean for all of us in dealing with uh, more refugees or disruption of energy supplies or control of the nukes? But you know, when the Soviet Union came apart, none of those were a problem. And we were not prepared for that. I think if we prepared for it, then we have a better chance of a, of a better outcome. And, and finally, if Putin is not defeated, then we're just going to keep getting more people like him. And of course, it's going to add up to the cost too, because if Russia is not stopped in Ukraine, they're only going to go further. But I think we also have to keep in mind here, something that all four of us really tried hard to change and we haven't managed it looks like and and that would be the fact that the biden administration's policy at the beginning was amazing in the sense of publishing intelligence and warning us we haven't had that under obama at all so that's that's a significant change but then the policy has been offering zelensky a ride policy of the administration has never been we want a chance of pushing back Russia and the administration already had a coloring or a positioning vis-a-vis -vis international affairs that was very clear with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, the images of people clinging onto planes is what the administration became known for. And so we all want a qualitative change in that, and we make the arguments for why. But I am skeptical at this point, almost two years into the war, and by the way, 10 years into the actual war with the Maidan starting yesterday on 21st of November, that, that we will not see a significant change in the way we want it and how we're making arguments. So then let me run by you one more idea, a, a plan B by definition, but nevertheless, it's better to have a plan B than to have nothing. And that is former NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen's proposal from about 10 days ago to get Ukraine into NATO in a Germany scenario in which the borders would remain the same, internationally recognized, but only the part that is under Ukrainian control effectively goes under NATO Article 5, and then we will see, which is, of course, Plan B, and it's terrible, and it's a win for Russia. But we have to look at it realistically. It's also an unlikely Plan B because we don't have the political will, it seems. And so I want to ask... So the question, I suppose, is like, you know, like if... if... Plan B is not realistic, then like, you know, what's the plan C then? Because, because we are still sort of dealing with the same Russia. Yeah, the plan C is Ukraine overrun, right? Eventually, I mean, they can fight as long as they want to, but if they are in one year not getting any aid anymore, how much can they hold against a Russia that is producing and that is using people as cannon fodder? So that's anyway... <laughs> with this selling of Plan B, I am sure you followed this, General Hodges, and this is something that is will be discussed quite a lot in the coming months as we're getting close to NATO at 75 and a very big unknown in terms of the future of the alliance with or without Ukraine. So what do you make of all of that? Do we have 
have a chance for Plan B. So the Biden administration has a chance to completely erase the memory of the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan by helping Ukraine win. Now, to be clear, the Biden administration does not completely own responsibility for the failure in Afghanistan. That's spread across 20 years and four different presidents of never having a clearly defined objective and various other mistakes. And we, that's another podcast. We could talk about that. But they have a chance to erase erase that with a successful, decisive winning strategy to help Ukraine win that changes everything. And that takes away Iran's most important ally, which then weakens Iran's ability to support Hamas and the Houthis and Hezbollah. Which is, so that would be helping us in Israel. Of course, it would then send a very powerful signal to the Chinese about our resolve, our capacity, and our capability. That should be the focus. Instead, the U.S. was the biggest stumbling block to uh, extending an invitation to Ukraine at the Vilnius summit. And my sense is right now, unfortunately, there's even less enthusiasm for Ukraine coming into NATO that there will not be an invitation at the Washington summit. I felt differently on the hills of Vilnius. I thought, okay, well, at least the language changed, the mood had changed. It was no longer if, but when. But since then, I get much less of a vibe, a positive vibe that the U.S. would be willing to do what it takes to encourage all the nations to agree that, yes, we want Ukraine in the alliance, that we would be better off if they were. And so while I had heard about and I, I don't I'm not opposed to suggestion, but it just has a sort of a gimmicky feel to it. And I think that why should Russia be rewarded with being able to keep Crimea, which is the most important piece of real estate in the entire Black Sea region other than the Bosphorus? I mean, that's what makes it so significant. Why why should they be allowed to keep that? And how do you help Ukraine rebuild when all five of their ports, including the two that are inside Azov Sea, are blocked? More broadly, it raises the question of what is the mental model of the sort of end game or peace arrangement that the administration is working with or working towards? Like, what are they imagining the end state of this is? Because right now, everything seems to be sort of pointing in the direction of just letting Ukrainians fight on their own for as long as they want, and this then ending in a state of a sort of frozen frozen conflict down the line. And thankfully, it's unlikely that Russians will overrun Ukraine, but it strikes me that not only we are not doing enough to allow Ukrainians to win, but we are not even thinking about what it will take for the Ukrainians to win the peace, which may or may not come afterwards. And as long as we are dealing with the same Russia that wants to conquer and reconstitute the Soviet Union and bring countries into its own sphere of influence, we should be thinking actively about deterrence, about making sure that Russia can't ever do this again. And we are far, far from from that kind of mindset, it seems to me. Ben, we'll let you go, but I want to close where we began by looking back to the past to help us discover where we are now, even prior to the beginning of this phase of the war, and take you back to your years in command in Europe. It seemed to me at the time that the United States had come to the conclusion, if you will, this is going to be sort of a caricature, but still maybe it'll be helpful, that war in Europe on a large scale was something that could never happen again. We strategize and plan and formed policies with that larger thought in mind. Um, when we were slow to react to the beginning of, of the Russo-Ukrainian War in 2014, we didn't do much about the incursions into Georgia in 2008. So there have been many signals of 
Putin's intent to build the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union, depending on which day of the week it is, that we have looked at and then looked away from. First of all, have you seen a similar pattern? I mean, I know that you tried very, very hard to get resources for your command and sometimes occasionally uh, got in trouble for doing so. But, you know, again, I'm just wondering whether we're still in that mindset that Europe's strategic importance is diminished relative to other places and that nothing really has happened to shake us out of that sort of post-Cold War belief that things will right themselves, nothing really dangerous is afoot in Europe? Or am I just being as depressive as I was at the beginning of the show? Our European allies, who are so important to us because of the capability they bring, because of the access they give, the, the bases that we have in Europe, the economic power, and the, and the military potential that they have, is important because the United States does not have the capacity or the capability to do everything that needs to be done around the world. It's, it's a fact. That's why the president emphasized rebuilding alliances and in the work that the U.S. has done, starting back even during the Trump administration to rebuild relationships in the Indo-Pacific region, for example. But trust is such an important part of this. And as one of my old bosses used to say, you can't surge trust. You know, trust is based on time, shared values, shared challenges, and, and uh, going through the hard times together. And right now, Every European uh, that I speak to, whether it's a friend or a journalist or a military or whatever, they are terrified about the possibility of a return of Trump. Not because he's going to bark at them about 2%. That had the opposite effect, actually. You know, no German politician wanted to be seen as giving in to pressure from Trump's. It did nothing to help Germany spend more money. But what they do care about is can they count on the United States? Germany, you know, when I talk to my German friends, I say, come on, why, why can't you guys provide Taurus? The British have provided Storm Shadow. The French have provided Scalp. They were not concerned about Ukrainians doing something that would generate a, a nuclear reaction. Why don't you do it? And what I got from a very, very, very senior German person, let's say that's in a position to know this, he said that the Bundeskanzler, Chancellor Schultz, is very concerned because he doesn't have a nuclear weapon. The Brits and the French have their own nuclear weapon. And so if Germany somehow, because they provided Taurus, ended up getting drawn into a conflict with Russia and without the United States, because they really believe that Trump will pull the U.S. out of NATO, then Germany would be in a disastrous situation. So that's the, the importance of trust between our allies. I think that this war in, in Ukraine, and I'm, I'm glad you called it the Russo-Ukraine war, I think historians are going to have to settle on some name, what you call this thing, but it is a result. This is what failed deterrence looks like. We did nothing of consequence after Russia invaded Georgia in 2008. We did nothing of consequence after they jumped over President Obama's red line in Syria. And the Assad regime, by the way, is still killing their own people. We did nothing after that. And then we really did nothing of consequence after they invaded Crimea and Ukraine in 2014. And so you could almost imagine they're in the Kremlin. They see we hadn't done anything. So I'm talking about like in 2021 now. We hadn't done anything. Germany's still building Nord Stream 2 deep into 2021. We had had this terrible conclusion to our 20-year campaign in Afghanistan. And then the domestic chaos in America of January the 6th. And for the first time in our life, not a peaceful transition of power in America. You could imagine the Russians saying, let's go ahead and finish the job. The West is not going to do anything. They're corrupt. 
They're disoriented. Trump will pull the U.S. out of NATO. Macron thinks NATO is brain dead. And so the Russians ended up making a terrible, terrible miscalculation that has cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. So this is what we get if we don't think strategically about Europe. All those things I just laid out started after the U.S. and U.K. and the German Bundeswehr began to disarm in Europe. After the last American tank went home, after decisions were made to get rid of Apache helicopters in Europe, and the army went from about 300,000 to 30,000, then all this stuff started. I don't know how, how many more times we have to talk about, you know, the lessons of history. Well, this has been a sobering pre-Thanksgiving uh, conversation, and we should be thankful for. I mean, man, the three of us feel like we're kind of in the trenches, in the front lines here in Washington. So the war is going on here as much as it is uh, in southern Ukraine and eastern Ukraine, and possibly the, the, the outcome will be as influenced by the uh, the events of the next year or so. But to try to end on, on a positive note, thank you for joining us uh, as we enter the holiday season. We do have much to be thankful for in this regard. Uh, you mentioned not only the changing balance of power in the Black Sea, but the crossing of the Dnipro. The defenses of the Ukrainian army in eastern Ukraine have been quite remarkable things. And also, as you, we mentioned in passing, the continued inventiveness of the Ukrainians in standing up for themselves, inventing new systems and new ways of defending themselves that have proven very effective. So that is what passes for optimism on the Eastern Front here. So with that, let me uh, say thank you to my colleagues. Yulia Zoja and David Burhaj. And to our guest, retired General Ben Hodges. Ben, we look forward to having you back on a periodic basis. You're always a, a ray of southern sunshine in an otherwise overcast eastern front. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the podcast services. We publish a newsletter every month to help you keep abreast of what we're publishing elsewhere on these subjects. And so, until next time, thanks for joining us. Bye.